Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Keith Moore shares today's message. Well, good morning and happy Easter. I want you to take your Bibles. We use them every week here as you're turning. For those of you who are guests, my name is Keith Moore. I'm the senior pastor here at Dogwood Church and glad to be with you this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the little book of First Peter. Uh, it's way back over toward the back of your Bible, almost to the book of maps. Almost there, almost there, not quite, almost there. And First uh, Peter chapter 1, put your finger there and hold it just a second. We're going to take a look at that uh, today. It's uh, Easter, and this is the 29th Easter sermon that I've delivered to this congregation. Uh, my, da- my daughter Mary Beth called me this past week and uh, caught me in my study and said, Dad, what you doing? I said, well, I'm working on the sermon for Sunday. She said, uh, Easter, right? Yep. What you going to say? And I said, well, again, this is the 29th time, and every time I read the story, Jesus rises from the dead. So I'm not going to change that today. Um, And I'm not going to tell you anything new, but I do hope to clarify for you what it means. You see, we, uh, we, at least in the Western world, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, you're aware of the probably the general tenets of the Christian faith, and you know that Christians gather on this weekend of the year to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. What you might not understand is why. Why? Really, there's a lot of confusion uh, in our culture and in our world as to why the resurrection is important. Uh, some say if it happened at all, those who believe in it, wonder, now, now what, now why, why is this important? We're going to get there today. Uh, Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1, let me read God's Word aloud. You follow along. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though, now for a short time, you have had to struggle with various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love Him, though you have not seen Him. And though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Pray with me. And so, Lord, as you said in your word, we ask that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your word and that you may open our minds that we may properly understand the scriptures. And we ask this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, 30 years 
uh, after the resurrection of our Lord from the dead, the Apostle Peter took pen and he began to write a, a letter of encouragement to a group of Christians who lived in what then was northwestern, the northwestern region of Asia Minor. It was part of what today would be modern Turkey. And uh, you'll remember that the, the Apostle Peter uh, previously was a crusty, earthy, old, hard-working, probably a little bit profane uh, fisherman, commercial fisherman. Anybody ever done commercial fishing? Got a few in here. You know those guys, could they be considered as a little bit crusty and earthy? Yeah. Yeah, just that. and so that was them. But one day something happened that changed everything. He met Jesus. And on the shore there, Jesus invited, did a remarkable thing, because he was not a great prospect for spiritual transformation, but he invited him to become his disciple. Now, Jesus behaved as a Jewish rabbi. And the practice of the Jewish rabbis is that they would invite people to learn from them. Now, that's what the word disciple literally means. It means learner, a learner of. He said, come, be a learner of, of me. And Peter did. And if you read all of the Gospels, you'll find Peter, uh, he was born with a silver foot in his mouth, some say. And um, uh, he, he was always messing up and he was impetuous and he failed here. And when Jesus was arrested, he was, was really a coward. I would have been too uh, at that. But something happened after he witnessed the resurrection of Christ. He was transformed. And he became the dynamic leader of the early church. Well, this is the guy that wrote this letter. He wrote it around 63 A.D., probably from the city of Rome, where most scholars believe he spent the last 10 years of his life. And he starts out at the very first of this letter doing what little Jessica did here, except he probably didn't sing it. He was praising God. I mean, look at verse 3. He says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm, you know, many of us in, in church, just ministers, sometimes when we get up, we get a talk like we got a steeple stuck in our throat. You know, I'm really solemn and God and that, you know, we read the scripture, praise the God and Father of our Lord. No, no, no. I'm thinking, Peter was, he was already out of control, gloriously out of control over, over this great, great God here. Well, Why? Well, we see immediately in verses 3 and 4, he goes on to say this is the reason. According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Wow. Now, there's a lot here in these few verses, and we'll not get to the majority of it, but we're going to get to the main point today. Uh, when you come to any passage of Scripture... Uh, an important question for you to ask to get the meaning from it is this. What does this say about God? What does God tell us about Himself? We have many opinions about God today. I, I like it when Americans, we love to use this phrase, when they're talking about God, they say, well, I like to think about God as, and fill in the blanks. Well, it doesn't really matter what you like to think about God as. It doesn't matter what I like to think about God is. God tells us who He is and what He's like in His Word. And here we find in verse um, 3 that He is a merciful God. Among many other attributes, God is a God of incredible mercy. 
the, the scripture here says great mercy, awesome mercy, really big mercy. Uh, and he, he showed it this way. This passage means that he was compelled by his mercy to give us a new birth. And you say, well, pastor, why was, what's merciful about that? Well, it's a merciful act because none of us deserve it. See, God owes you nothing. Uh, you're, God's not hoping you'll join His team so He can feel better about Himself. He's not, me either. You know, we, we don't bring anything to God's table. He does not need us. Uh, God is not ever in our debt, nor will He ever be. Uh, this is a merciful act because we don't deserve it. So what do you mean we don't deserve it? Well, now here... Here's the problem with Easter and the cross is that it's insulting to us. I mean, it's insulting to us. It means we are so sorry and no count and sinful that it took God Himself dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. You deserve, like an old mountain preacher I heard one time say, you deserve to go to hell and burn like a sausage on a hot summer day. <laughs> now, I'm not sure you'll find that language in Scripture. But I love that poetic way that he could say it. Now, most of us don't really believe. Well, I'm, you know, I'm bad, but like I'm not that bad like those people. Yeah, you are. And I am. The Scriptures say, the script, Jesus himself said that every one of us have broken every single one of God's Ten Commandments, at least in spirit. Murder, lying, theft, you name it having other gods before Him, and that we have lived life in open rebellion against the rule and the reign of God in our lives. And now, we, we like God as Americans, typically whether we believe Jesus is God or not. We like Him. It's good to have a God over here. But now we like, we love to use that phrase, we are the captain of our own fate. What that means is, is I'm in charge of my own life. Thank you very much. You know what the Bible calls that? Sin and rebellion against a holy God. And it offends God. And it, 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 it has broken our relationship with Him so that we are, as, as Jesus said this in the Scriptures, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are in trouble. We are in debt to God, and we have a debt that we cannot pay. We deserve, guilty sinners deserve to pay for their own sins. Don't you agree? We like things to be fair, don't we? Don't we want justice? A few years ago... A few years ago, I was, uh, uh, I, I'm an optimist. And what I mean by that is I, I'm always, all my life since I was a kid, I've always thought I could get more done in five minutes than I can. I can get, I can get one more call into this. And so what that means is I'm perpetually late. You know, I'm, oh, and so one day, uh, early years of the church, when our campus was down on Robinson Road, I'd done that again. Oh, I'd get one more thing done before I go see this person. Had an appointment while I was late, and I jumped in my car, and I'd, I tore out up Robinson Road. I was doing about 55 when I came around the curve up there, which is at least 10 miles an hour, depending on where you are on that road over the speed limit. And I met a Peachtree City police car coming that way. He just went ahead and turned his lights on. And he, and he pulled me over and walked up to the car, and it was a member of my church. <laughs> he loves for me to tell this story. Now, I'll never name him. He's safe with me. And so I thought, maybe I'll get mercy. No, I got justice. 
He didn't give me mercy. I got, I got exactly what I deserved. None of this, well, you should let, you should let me off the hook. Now, wait a minute. There's this law and I broke it radically. How's that? That's not justice. That's, I mean, you know, that's not, that's justice is I paid for my sins. So I showed up and paid for my sins. Mercy would have been him withholding from me what I deserved. Well, you see, when, when God gave us the new birth through faith in Christ and His resurrection from the dead, He was merciful. He withheld from us what we actually deserved to atone for our own sin forever in a place called hell. God is a merciful God. He, he is holy, He is just, and he, and he believes sin must be fully atoned for. Justice is all going to be worked out in eternity. But He loved you and me so much that He could not bear the thought of us having to atone for our own sin forever in a place called hell. Now, if my friend, the police officer, had been merciful, he'd have gone down and paid my fine for me. See, but that's what God did. He took it out of His own hide paid the penalty for us. That's why he is merciful. His mercy is huge. It is it is tremendous. It's a it's it's incredible. It's a prayer. So sometimes, you know, when you hear people in our culture, you might hear someone say, Lord have mercy. You ever hear anybody say that? Now they may not be thinking about this, but whatever they say, that's darn good praying. Lord have mercy on me a sinner. And so he made a way for us. And that way is called, in verse 3, the new birth. Look at it. He has given us a new birth into a living hope. This week I read a story about a man named Dick Lucas. Dick is a retired Anglican minister. I think he's still alive. A retired Anglican minister in, uh, in England. And uh, he was the rector of a, uh, an Anglican church in the very center of of London, in, in London proper, what's called the City of London. Some call it the Square Mile. It's the financial district of the City of London. It's the Wall Street of London. And, and many powerful uh, people and wealthy people live and work there. And they, many of them attended his church. Well, when he, he came to that church in the early 1960s, he began to teach and preach and talk about this need for people to be born again and teach what the Bible says about the new birth. And there were a lot of people who were very unhappy that he was bringing that sort of message to the congregation. One person even said to him after a sermon one day, that was a good sermon, very good sermon, but it would have been more appropriate if you would preach it in a church down in Bethnal Green, which is a very poor part of the city. Now, what that person was saying was this. Now, you know, born again is okay. But it's not for people like us. It's good for certain kinds of people, failed people, really messed up people, uh, people who can't get along in life and need an extra hand. But it's not for educated, cultured, successful people like us. It's for those people. You know, I've noticed that here in what we call the, the other magic kingdom, you know, Fayette and Coweta County and South Fulton County, the South Atlanta suburbs, we're filled with, uh, with people who consider ourselves well-educated and successful and cultured. And there are a few that are. The rest of us just like to think we are, don't we? 
But whether, whether you are or not does not matter. For our purposes, if you think you are, you most likely believe that this new birth, this born-again thing is for certain kinds of people different from us, much worse off than we are, and therefore you believe that the new birth describes a particular kind of Christianity, a type of Christianity. Well... Let me be very clear because God the Father is very clear in, in the Scriptures on this, in His Word, the Bible. He says born-again Christians are not a type of Christian. They're not a particular one of the kinds of Christians. He says only born-again Christians are Christians. If one is not born again, they're something. But whatever they are, they're not Christian. Not according to the Scriptures, not according to Jesus. Uh, To to call someone a born-again Christian is to be redundant. I mean, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that I loved. It said, help stamp out and eliminate redundancy. I like that. I have that one. So to call someone a born-again Christian is like calling uh, someone a human man. It's redundant. It's redundant. All Christians are born again or they are not Christian at all. So where would you get that? Jesus said it in John chapter 3. He said, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Don't be amazed, he, told, he said, that you must be born again. The apostle Peter in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23, a few verses later from our passage here, said, you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. James the apostle in James chapter 1 verse 18 said, by his choice, speaking of God the Father, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth. The Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 said this, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away all our sins, giving us a new birth. We say, well, okay, Pastor, if, if this is necessary, then, then what is it? Well, there have been libraries of, written about the new birth. The theologians have a word for it. It's called regeneration. And, uh, but I think we can sum it up in just a couple of sentences here. And here it is. When people like you and me acknowledge that we are sinful people, that we're sinners, that we're not, not mistakers, but sinners, means that we have intentionally, knowingly revolted against the holy God and that we're in trouble with it. We admit that we are sinners, that we've offended God, and we, we are convicted about our sin and separation from God, and we repent. That word means to turn around, to make a change of, of uh, thought uh, that results in a change of direction. We change our mind about our sin and our self-sufficiency, and we put our trust in Christ alone and what He accomplished when He died on the cross and rose from the dead is the only thing sufficient to make us okay with God the Father, to reconcile us with God the Father, to forgive us our sins and and give us God's gift of eternal life. When we do that, the Bible said God gives us what He calls the new birth. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new heart. A heart that is capable of responding to Him. He transforms us from the inside out. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 5, when he said that if anyone is in Christ... They are a new creature, a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Brand new 
condition. And that is what is called the new birth, or to be born again, to be born spiritually, to be born from above, as Jesus called it. Now, here's the question. Has this ever happened to you? I mean, let me, just in your own mind, I'm not, just maybe jot down these notes. When and where were you when you first understood this for the first time? When you first understood that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins and He rose from the dead and that we need Him to apply that to us personally, that you needed Him to substitute for you to atone for your sin. When and where were you when you realized that for the first time? For me, I was a nine-year-old boy sitting in the back of the First Baptist Church of Bremen, Georgia, sitting by my daddy, and it came clear to me, you know, if the Spirit of God works in them, nine- and ten-year-olds can understand this. Now, I, th- that's, when I, that's when I understood it. Okay, now here's another question. So when and where were you when you asked for Jesus personally to be your substitute to atone for your sin? When did you ask for it? For me, it was about 30 seconds after I realized I needed it. I said, not only do I need you, Jesus, I want this, please. And I repented and turned. Now, I didn't have all these theological terms then, didn't understand everything about it. I don't understand everything about it now. But like Dr. Vance Havner once said, I don't understand everything there is to know about electricity. But I'm not going to sit in the dark till I find out. So I recommend, so when and where. And if you don't have a when and where, you ask for Jesus to be your substitute, you're in trouble. And I recommend you make today the place and today the time. So, how did God the Father make this new birth a reality? Well, take a look again at verse 3. He did it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How did this work? Well, when Jesus was on this earth, He made a lot of radical claims. Some say Jesus was a great teacher just a great teacher, great philosophy. Some say, our Muslim friends say that he was a great prophet, only, uh, only uh, exceeded by Muhammad, great, great prophet. But you know, he didn't leave us that option because he also walked around saying things like, I'm God. I'm the only one who can forgive sin. I'm the only one who can reconcile you to God the Father. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except except through me. Now, he either was right about that or he was nuts or he was the most terrible liar who ever walked the earth. Well, people began to call him on it. And uh, some doubted him, some mocked him, some got mad as sin at him and wanted to kill him because the Jewish leaders, Jewish religious leaders, they understood what he was saying, that he was saying, I am, I am God. They wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the crowd. So instead they said, hey, prove it that you are the one who has the power to forgive sin. He said, okay. Several different times he basically said, "Uh, they're going to kill me, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. He said, what I'm going to do is going to prove that I am who I say I am, that I have the power that I claim to have, and that you can count on me. I do what I say I will do. The resurrection is important because... Here it is. It is God's guarantee for you and me 
that the death of Jesus on the cross was sufficient to fully atone for our sins. How to know this is true, God? Okay, here we go. Let's, I'm going to, we're going to prove it. The resurrection proves that this is true. That's why the resurrection is so important. You see, you must believe in the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus from among the dead. You must believe that Jesus actually physically rose from among the dead and is alive today to experience the new birth. You can't become a Christian unless you believe that. You say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a Christian, but I don't necessarily believe all this dramatic uh, supernatural stuff. Well, once again, you may be something, but you're not a Christian. You may be a supernatural, you know, you may be religious, but this is essential. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, hear the words of God from the Scriptures. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's essential. It's essential. It makes it the new birth a reality. And this new, so what does the new birth do for us? Many things, but I want to describe one big deal. He says it in, in verse 3 and 4 here. We've been given a new birth into a, write down this phrase on your notes, a living hope. He describes it as a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He describes it as an inheritance, imperishable, uncorruptible, uh, unfading, kept for you in heaven. Now that means a lot of things, but let me just sum it up by saying this. It means that you can have certain hope for managing life today because you have certain hope that your eternity is okay. And that's the closest that you'll get to a poem from me. You can have a living hope, certain hope that you can manage life today because of your certain hope that in your eternity you're going to be okay with Christ. It is a certain hope. You see, because of our faith in Christ, our hope in Him, the new birth, He paid the penalty of our sin, so we're free from the penalty of our sin. We have salvation past. We have hope for eternity with Him in heaven, kept for you in heaven. That means when you die, your eternity with Christ in heaven is going to be good. It's okay. You know, you are not prepared to live day to day until you're prepared to die and live in eternity. You understand that, don't you? The way to prepare to handle life now is to make sure you're okay then. Robert, you know every year about this time I, I check the statistics in Fayette County and I've discovered once again this past week that the death rate is still the same. One out of every one persons in Fayette County is going to die. I mean, some, you know some people that have died. You know some people that are look like they're at death's door. And every one of us in here are going to die. <laughs> uh, let's cry with her. <laughs> Happy Easter. <laughs> Happy Easter. But the good news is, but, but, but you know, a bunch of us are laughing at this. Why are we laughing? It's because a bunch of us in here have a living hope. We're not afraid of death. 
We're not afraid of death. I'm glad, I'm glad, you know, we're not getting up a load now. I mean, there's not a bus load. You know, I want to live as long as God wants me to live now. But who's afraid of death? Those who have put their hope in Christ and experienced the new birth. It is certain. You see, now we use the word hope here in our culture um, to mean something that we really, something we really wish would happen. I just wish it would happen. And there's no basis for the hope. Uh, opening day, I mean, like for example, Brave, how many Braves fans we got in here? I'm one. Yeah, I've got, got a few, little more in this. Look at all you who aren't Braves fans. I'm telling you, all you imports <laughs> that have come in here pulling for all these other pagan major league teams. Where's Roger Beals? He in his service? He's a Cardinals fan. Good grief. Anyway, anyway, but but us Braves fans, we're, I'm, we're already said, hey, I hope I hope the Braves win the pennant this season. And I do hope they do. What do we mean when we say we hope? Well, we just wish it would happen. But now, yeah, keep wishing. Uh, yeah, yeah. But now, this, this, when you see the word hope here in the New Testament, it is a Greek term that meant absolute certainty. A living hope, a certain hope, a take-it-to-the-bank kind of hope. In fact, the verbs that are used to describe our security of our salvation in verse 4 and in verse 5, it says that this great salvation, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. In, in verse 5, you are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. These are two uh, verbs that carry with them the idea of safe deposit. Many of us here have things that are valuable to us, and we, we have them locked away in a safe deposit box, in a bank, in a vault, in a box, under lock and key. It's pretty much as secure as you can get anything in this world. These verbs carry with it that kind of thing, that God Himself has locked away the security of your eternity with Him once you've placed your faith in Jesus and you can take it to the bank. It's certain. It's a certain hope. He's not describing a bunch of people, well, I hope I'm going to be okay. If that's the way you are about eternity, you can, you can know. He said, well, wait a minute. nobody can know for certain. Who told you that? God didn't tell you that because in 1 John chapter 5, around verses 14, 15 or somewhere along in there, he says this, These things have been written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know for certain that you have eternal life. So if you're uncertain, let's settle the deal. It's part of what the resurrection of Jesus means. It's what Easter means. Wow. Some of you say, Pastor, I wish all this was true. I wish I had some evidence. I understand that. I understand that, but some of you have been told, I wish there was evidence, but there is no evidence, so nobody can know. Oh, yes, volumes and volumes and volumes of evidence that the resurrection of Jesus was, a, was an historical reality and that He is alive today. Those of you who are guests, when you leave and pick up the gift that we have for you at the help desk and other stations, in that gift is a little book we're included called The Case for Easter by um, a writer named Lee Strobel. And in there, he gives just a little bit of the medical evidence 
the historical evidence and the philosophical evidence for the reality of, the historicity of, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There's much, much more that you could read. But let me give you two subjective reasons for believing that this is so. They're found in verses 6 through 9. Those of you who are skeptics and not yet followers of Christ, and you wonder if this new birth thing is a reality, Here's my challenge. Those of you Christians who are not practicing your faith and you've given up hope, here's what I recommend. Take, six, take the next six months and I want you to begin to observe the Christians around you and see how they handle suffering. Now be sure you get some real ones. Frank, I, when we are down in the school years ago, uh, I invited a guy to come to services who was who was not a follower of Christ. He was he's really church uninitiated. It was church world was new to him, and that may be like some of you. And so he came a few services, and then I wanted to know his opinion. And afterwards, I said, "So what you think?" He said, "Well, here's what he said. He said, well, here's what I think. Some's got it, and some don't.'" I thought that was incredibly insightful. So some say they're Christians and they're not. They don't got they don't don't have it. They're not they're really not. And some say they are and they are. Just be sure find those that are and you can tell. Watch them long enough you can tell. And then I want you over a period of 6 months to the next year observe how they respond to suffering. How they respond to adversity. For the apostle Peter saw that in these people and he was amazed. You see the Christians that Peter wrote to in Asia Minor uh, were, a, were a people who were having a hard time because they were Christians. Uh, they were suffering a little bit. If we read the whole rest of the book of First Peter, you'll find some of them were being abused on the job by overbearing, unbelieving bosses, hassling them just because they were followers of Jesus. Some of them were being threatened with desertion by unbelieving spouses. Some of them were being ridiculed by skeptical neighbors and associates, you'll see. And, and so it's kind of everyday kind of persecution and difficulty for following Christ. They're having a hard time. But they were kind of saw on the horizon, looming on the horizon, was the radical persecution of Christians that would come by order of the evil emperor Nero one year after this book was written in 64 AD. And we begin to see the widespread official slaughter of people because they were followers of Christ around the Roman Empire. Much like we're seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer in the Middle East at the hands of ISIS as we are speaking today. They were having a hard time. Yet listen to what he said to them about what he observed, almost in, with wonder, he says about this new birth and this living hope. He said, "You rejoice." Look at verse six. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you've had to struggle in various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said. People who aren't followers of Christ, this is not even on your scope. You see hope and sorrow as mutually exclusive. It's just circumstances. Well, I happen to be in the circumstances that now I'm having joy. But now here comes some hard times and now I'm having sorrow. I'm just under my circumstances. He is saying here, when you've experienced the new birth, 
God is active with His resurrection power in your life so that He enables you to live life to the fullest, as Jesus said, to fully embrace grief and sorrow and grieve while simultaneously being comforted by the deep inner sense of well-being that is called joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength, the psalmist said. And for those of you who are outside the faith, you're going, what? How does that work? But for 29 years, I have walked with many with this congregation, and I've seen this happen with you over and over and over and over and over and over. The joy of the Lord in the midst of difficulty. And not only that, suffering refines true Christians so that when they come out the other side, they actually love God more as a result of the suffering, and they love people more. People who don't have this, they go through suffering, they become bitter. Some of you are bitter because you didn't understand suffering. You're not going to make it through life until you understand how to go through suffering. And the only way to do it is by being born again with Jesus. So, Watch how Christians respond to suffering. Second, I want you to realize that for um, 2,000 years, millions upon millions of people since the resurrection of Christ have put their faith in Him for the new birth and have fallen in love with Him because of His love for them, and they've never laid an eye on Him. Now, it's a, well, all of us who are followers of Jesus now say, well, so, that's, that's me. I mean, I believed in Jesus. I've never seen Him, and I love Him. I've never laid an eye on him. Isn't that how everybody came to be a Christian? Nope, not the Apostle Peter. He'd seen him. He was an eyewitness. He walked with him. He touched him. He saw his death. He saw his resurrection. He was standing on the Mount of Olives and saw him when he ascended into heaven. And he, he and, and so he believed and he loved what he Jesus himself said one time before all this happened to him. You see and you believe because of these things. You see, blessed are those who will believe and not see. And he was prophesying about you and me. You and me. So for those of you who are scared, how is it that people can believe in him and love him so and never laid eyes on him? David, how about that? There's much more evidence. But Peter here, he said, he was amazed because he said, well, I love him, but I saw him. But he said, you love him, though you've not seen him. Look at verse 8. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible joy. Why? Look at verse 9. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Because you have received a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Pray with me. So, Lord... There's a bunch of us in this room who are rejoicing with inexpressible joy because of the living hope you've placed in our heart here and for eternity, proven by your resurrection from the dead. Help us to grow in our love for you because of it. I pray for our friends here who have been who are outsiders who've never asked you to be the substitute to atone for them for their own sin and submit their life in eternity unto you. Help them do it now, so that because you live, they may live also. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.